0: In this episode, we answer the age old question what the hell is psychology? All right, hey, welcome back. My name is Michael Sano, and as you've probably guessed, we are no longer. In Michael Sano has a podcast. This is now officially the sea and land fitness podcast, um, which is sponsored by sea and land fitness. And today, 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 I'm so excited. I am so excited. I've been trying to get this guy on forever. Um, he has been, well, we're not going to use the word Dodge. Did I just use the word Dodge? I think I did. He has been not dodging me. But he is finally here, Dr. Garrett Beattie. Um, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure. And I have been dodging you. I'm a hot commodity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All so, right. Now, I, this
1: thing, I'm not really a hot commodity other than <laughs> my kids constantly get sick every time we've scheduled this. So I've had a not lot of a- car pickup duty.
0: But not only that, uh, with the multitude of emails uh, that I wind up getting from you that are not directly sent to me, I'm just in the email chain, you are incredibly busy. So the fact that you're here is amazing. Um, Now, you are... All right. Are you ready for the CV rundown? Um, (laughs) You are an associate uh, professor at the University of Florida... Um, in the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology, College of Health and Human Performance. Um, your research focus is the influence of emotional experience, emotion regulation, and attention on motor performance, uh, big science, um, athlete development, mental skills training, injury rehabilitation, and coaching, and you are... The creator of the temporal influence model of emotion regulation, or the timer. Yes, the timer model. Um, welcome to the show. So uh, you're finally here. Tell us. Uh, I I I would say tell us a little bit about yourself. But can you put a little more uh, uh, a a little more depth to all the stuff that I just said?
1: Like make me more of a human being than a <laughs> AI professor bot. Yeah, sure. Um, one, um, I, one of my roles here at UF is also the director of academic technology and innovation, and people mm-hmm. routinely walk across me in the hallway or over me, maybe not across me, <laughs> um, and say, "Hey, tech guy, we have a question." Um, and I always think it's funny because not many of them know that I actually have a farm and really like when I get home from work, the last thing I do is want to pull up any technology. So I'm a farmer tech guy, I guess, maybe to make me a little bit more interesting than just this sport psych professor guy.
0: Well, that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about Florida, and especially where Gainesville is. Gainesville is in the heart of Florida farm country, so to speak. Yeah. Um. And how is the farm going? It's going well. I actually uh,
1: was doing some chainsaw work on some trees yesterday with my uh, with my son. So.
0: Get out of fun. here! Yeah. Now, how old is your son? Tell everyone. He will be seven in May. Was he? Did you have him working the chainsaw? Oh, uh, he was juggling them. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! Yeah. Well, no, no, no. no. The we, timer... s-
1: safe distance, hundred feet or more away and then <laughs> until it's turned off, and then he's he's on lift the limb
0: duty for now. Awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, so your main focus. So I I actually have a question before we get into it. So the first question is what is sports psychology? But as you answer that question, can you tell us why sports psychology is in the health and human performance department and not the psychology department?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll answer the question. What is sports psychology? And then we'll kind of naturally get there. All right, cool. Um, or maybe unnaturally uh, as we through <laughs> it. It may make more sense why I just said that. Uh, so Simply stated, and this is going to be like painfully obvious, and you're like, okay, who is this guy? Sport psychology is just the application of psychology to sport, uh, which seems really simple, straightforward. But then you start kind of unpeeling the onion that is the broader field of psychology in all the uh, the disciplines within psychology. So. There's clinical counseling psychology, which is really mental health focused. That can be applied to sport. There's cognitive psychology, so decision-making, information processing. That can be applied to sport. Social psychology can be applied. Teams, leadership, yeah, fan sure. behavior. So every subdiscipline that exists within psychology has an application to sport. And so the, the concept of what sports psychology is can get really confusing really quickly. Uh, as you start looking at these nuances and then all the specific uh, expertise areas that individuals in the broader field of psychology have. In terms of how sports psychology at the University of Florida found its way into a kinesiology department, it's not an uncommon model. Um, Most kinesiology departments started in a department of physical education. Back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s uh, when state-funded universities were emerging and physical education became a big component of uh, the the national educational agenda. And then over time, as science evolved, um, the physical education moved more towards a kinesiology and physiology focus, uh, much more basic science leading. So you see different sports psychology departments that are in kinesiology departments, you see Mm -hmm. sports psychology departments that are in colleges of education, and then you see sports psychology departments uh, or units that are within psychology departments within the United States. This model varies uh, depending on if you're in the United States or even different states within the United States, or if you're looking at a European model uh, or uh, Australia, New Zealand, depending on which country you're in, uh, you're going to see it kind of emerge in different places uh, for the end user the the customer the, the athlete the coach the parent um, I think those nuances are important to know when you start looking or shopping around for a sports psychology professional uh, to know that there's many different training paths that might you know lead somebody to work as a sports psychology professional and really knowing what you or your athletes might need and really kind of ask questions of those professionals to figure out where their particular area of expertise might be.
0: Okay. Because one of the things that I find is that, um, you know, like you had mentioned, there are the, the, the disparate paths, you have the goal setting, you have the, the literal neuropsychology, uh, discipline itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and those are so you would think that they are, so far apart but they're used in this psychological symphony this uh which the body can't even be removed from it the physiology of it can't even be removed from it so it's a good marriage um so how did it develop how did it how did it come to be um and why do we need it that's a loaded question Yeah. yeah <laughs> How
1: did it come to be the origins? If you're if you're going to open up a, a sports psychology textbook that any undergraduate taking a sports psychology course would take, it's going graduate trace- or or graduate or graduate. <laughs> um, the, the history of sports psychology, at least in the United States, traces back uh, to the kind of turn of the 20th century, so in the early 1900s. Um, there were some experiments that were done looking at pacemaking, so how people moderated their pace on a physical activity task. And um, what, what the study basically found is that if you were doing it in the presence of other people, you worked faster than if you did it alone. And so the concepts of motivation applied to movement emerged from there. Uh, then there was some development. Uh, Coleman Griffith is often cited as the... Um, the father of sports psychology in the United States. He was doing some work at the University of Illinois, uh, and I got hired by the Chicago Cubs uh, for a couple years to do some applied sports psychology with them. Um, It didn't work out in the end. Um, They had one successful season, one uh, not successful season, and then uh, that was it. Um, And then over time, you start to see these delineations within the the field where it moved away from just performance optimization until mental health components came in and then social psychology components came in industrial organizational psychology came in so all that just kinda has evolved into this buffet really of um, support psychology expertise that we have now available to uh, anybody looking for help in those areas but what the field has really lacked is the ability to help I think inform the customer of, of all those options and really figure out how to, to figure out the expert they're looking for. Why do we need it? Um, it depends on who you ask. I mean, a a lot of athletes would say they don't need it at all. Um, there's other individuals, myself maybe included that might argue that we all could benefit from this, whether we're an athlete or not. Uh, At the end of the day, if you think about the human as a, as a platform of performance, we work much like a computer works. We have, um, I'm looking at my, my desktop computer. We have all these information processing capabilities in our brain, um, and that brain, at the end of the day, is what helps us decide what to do. And then once we decide what to do, how to actually execute that. And from the day we're born until the day we die, that uh, unit is constantly adapting to all the information uh, that comes to it it adapts to what we do in response to that information, and what feedback we get from it. So if you watch a, a two year old try to walk, they're really clumsy. Uh, and the reason they're really clumsy is because they have a ton of neurons, actually more neurons than they'll ever have the rest of their life. Um, and they're all firing and communicating with one another. And so their bodies are just fiddling around, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And every single time they fail, they fall, they stub their toe, They try to feed themselves, and they miss completely. That's feedback that their brain and their nervous system then responds to, and it adapts over time, and they get better and better and better. So we do that throughout our lifetime in understanding how that process works. The process of learning, and particularly learning uh, movement and skills that you would see in sport or other performance domains, is really important and fundamental uh, to teaching and coaching. The other aspect of it is as soon as we get into stressful performance environments, emotionally evocative environments, environments that have the perception of really high impactful consequences to us as humans, to the way that other people think about us, anything we value, all of a sudden that brain that we've trained can completely shut down and do things in unpredictable ways. And so sports psychology can help make that less likely. Uh, both in the way that we train our athletes or the way we train ourselves in our day-to-day activities. If you train in an environment that's similar to what you're going to encounter, you're going to be better prepared for that. Um, If you get into a situation where you're encountering something novel or something that stresses you out or makes you anxious or really emotional, having a tool bag of skills to help manage that and get your brain back into an optimal performance um, setup or... Uh, performance uh, motivations or emotions or any of the psychological factors that influence performance can be really impactful in being successful or unsuccessful. So that's why I think we need it. And I I do think we all need it. um, Myself included. And, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if we should joke this way on this podcast, but based on some of our past conversations, but uh, it's almost like a Baptist minister, minister that's up there preaching um, you know, very uh, fervently, but also sweating, because deep down they know that they're as much of a sinner as everybody else that they're preaching to. Um, so it, when it comes to performance, whether you're a coach or an athlete or a sports psychology professional, we're all limited by the hardware that we were born with uh, and that we've trained, and we all can benefit from just... Incrementally trying to manage all the things that we interact with psychologically day to day.
0: Now, how does uh, so so? Just to to go back a little bit, it, it seems like sports psychology, and and if I'm correct in this, it evolved from occupational psychology. And you hit on uh, the the uh, doing a task in public around others caused the task to, uh, be increased. Um, it, it can, it became more economically sound mm-hmm. to have people around. They were, they were, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, they were able to do the task quicker mm-hmm. around other people. So would the, would, would it have been sold to the Cubs as, because for back then, being a baseball player was a job. It wasn't, it wasn't like, like we see it as this, this pinnacle, this evolution of performance, this, this pedestal that we put athletes on. They were put on pedestals back then too. But if you speak and you look at the history of baseball, they were, these, these guys looked at it like a job. So is that how it was kind of sold back then? You know, I'm not
1: that familiar with the history of this Um, to know the details. I can speculate, uh, but anybody listening, take this with a grain of salt. This is complete speculation. Uh, Back when Coleman Griffith would have been hired by the Cubs, baseball was the NFL back then, not literally, but that was the top league uh, in the United States. And if I recall correctly, the Cubs were one of the best-funded organizations. Um, so I think it's no different than now. Um, these organizations are looking for competitive advantages, um, owners, general managers, whoever's running the show is looking for any edge they can get. And I don't know the story, but my guess is a guy knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Coleman Griffith and was like, Hey, you should meet this guy. And they met him and, and he explained all the interesting things he was doing and they're like we need this guy and it worked for a little while until it didn't which is a recurring theme within the field of sport and sports psychology and um, the pressures that do exist within you know those those industries to win immediately and the way learning happens the way that sports psychology works it's not an immediate solution it's not a silver bullet it's not a simple pill that you can take um, in many cases it takes years of practice a lot of unlearning a lot of you know taking apart and dismantling some of the bad habits we picked up from our parents our early coaches uh, when we try to figure out solutions on our own that may not have been the most efficient or effective uh, also dealing with things that are happening in our lives because we're not isolated to just performers but things that are happening happening externally there's a lot of things going on and the way we think about the world around us the way we react to that it's a constant moving target so it's dynamic Um, and so to be able to do that consistently and to help people perform at their their optimal level consistently there's a lot of variables that contribute so um, my guess is it's not you know like most things in human history the way that story played out is not all that different than the way uh, it plays out for current sports psychology professionals working either in the sport industry or other industries that hire uh, such individuals.
0: I'm curious. The, the reason I ask is I'm, I guess I'm curious when it became sort of professionalized. I know that the APA, it's the redheaded stepchild in psychology, so to speak, but within the organizations themselves, not the, not the uh, accrediting organizations but the actual organizations that use it when did it become standard is it standard to have a sports psychologist and if it is when did that occur
1: yeah i guess it would depend on when you define standard practice right um but the short story is it took a really really long time i mean almost 100 years really before It became widely accepted. You're testing me, Michael. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) Of my field, right? Um, (laughs) But if memory serves me correctly, the the U.S. Olympic Committee and really the sub-organizations within uh, the USOC um, were really the first to adopt it and really embrace it. Um, I believe that organization was the first to have... And uh, list of not certified, but individuals that met the USOC criteria to be a sports psychology professional with uh, USOC athletes. Um, and again, my response is biased to the US model. Um, so Europe, uh, even nations within Europe, uh, Russia or the USSR, they had uh, things that were going on around the same time too, and kind of divergent paths to, to where they've where they started and, and where they've ended up. Um, and then really, you didn't see a ton of adoption at a systematic level really until more recently um, within the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, okay. After the USOC, I would say the US military was probably the next to embrace it, although probably not super public, um, which is yeah. <laughs> probably obvious why they may not. I mean, if, if Well, the military
0: too- used... So we'll talk about this distinction in a moment, but the military used performance psychology for decades. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the
1: trying to think about the history of it's difficult because it depends on which subfield of psychology we're talking about, what label was applied to it, what the kind of end goal was for the application of it. So it does get cloudy pretty quickly, depending on how you're going to define that. Um, Golf. Golf's interesting because you you have these teams of individuals. You have um, a professional golfer and then all of the individuals that support them as a team. Uh, But golf was uh, adopted it pretty early. Tennis adopted it pretty early. So the individual sports were the first. Um, Now, Major League Baseball, if not every single Major League Baseball club, Almost all of them have a team of sports psychology professionals. And then the NCAA, uh, within the last decade, put a huge emphasis on mental health of athletes. And when that occurred, the inclusion of an individual with expertise in psychology working with athletes increased across the board. Those models vary quite a bit, but the predominant model is a mental health model. So you're thinking about clinical and counseling psychologists working with athletes at the ncaa level less so of a performance optimization model not that that doesn't exist there's some um, ncaa uh, athletic departments that actually are are doing both Um, and not just a single individual they're looking for individuals with diverse training to build a team
0: well that's what i was going to ask Do do these clinical psychologists who come on NCAA teams. Do they have the skill set? Hey, Michael, I lost you on that question. No, I got you back. I got you. Um, the uh, do they have? Do these uh, do these psychologists that the NCAA brought on to these teams do they have the skill set? to work on motivation do they have the skill set to work on sports psychology as it's defined as it's
1: defined i think is the tricky question yeah um, they certainly have the skill set to work with athletes from a mental health model um, in the concepts of motivation emotion regulation attention um, recovery from stressful events, all apply to help athletes perform better. Um, I think I would draw the distinction between a performance optimization-focused sports psychology professional and mental health-focused professional is with performance optimization, the goal is almost exclusively performance optimization right now. At this moment, um, over time, our focus, our interaction between if I were the sports psychology professional and the client would be, how do we get you better at your trade? Whereas the mental health model is how do we get you as a human being better at being a human being and being the best version of yourself that it's you can be for never your own happen. personal goals and health and well-being. being. And so there is some, you know, some nuanced distinction there. I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, like, the way I describe it in class to students is, well, I'll pose a question like, do you have to be mentally healthy to be really good at sport? And we have plenty of examples where that's probably not <laughs> yeah. the case. Like You can be mentally unhealthy and still be really good at your trade. Then the question is, is that sustainable? And I think that's where the answer is almost overwhelmingly, if not unanimously. No, it's not sustainable. My take is you, we, we really, like the perfect model, if resources are unlimited, is we need a team. We need a, the, the field of psychology is so diverse. We, we need a team of experts. We need specialists that specialize in the sub-disciplines of that to be able to really adequately and fully uh, help the athletes, the coaches, the organization to optimize their performance, because we're pretty complicated, it turns out, uh, as human beings and how we function. The problem is that the the results oriented nature of sport and military and anything along those lines. There's always this emphasis on return on investment. So what is how many wins is this worth? How many home runs is this worth? Um, how many lives saved in um, you know a military campaign is this worth? And with psychology, think it's really difficult to measure. Um, and you know, well, mental health, I think, is. It's longitudinal.
0: I think, I think it's, so you're right. It absolutely is difficult to measure, but it's almost as if we don't spend enough time in exploring it to see if it actually works.
1: Yeah. You're, I mean, preaching to the choir, you're not going to get an argument from me on that. I mean, I, I do think more money should be invested in this space from organizations and more resources, investigating like data informed practice. So what are we doing that's working? What are we doing that's not working? Why is what we are doing that's working, working? And why is what we're doing that's not working, not working? And then incrementally get better at that so that it is truly a scientific practice of applied sports psychology. That to me would be the gold standard. I don't know how many places that exists systematically anyway I know there's many organizations that are attempting to do this
0: um, University I'm not of Florida
1: well yes. informed enough to speculate on how effective it is at this
0: point so um, the University of Florida is implementing that with their sports programs I've spoken to people on the uh, the women's swim team the track team there are a lot of uh, sports psychology as well as mental health, Um, resources for the athletic department. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and the
1: NCAA uh, member institutions have invested widely in this space. Again, you get many divergent models as to what a different athletic department might do from another athletic department. Uh, But even at the mid-major level, there's job postings almost weekly uh, in this space. But again, the desired criteria and expertise for those individuals varies quite a bit.
0: Now, since there are so many different models, is someone taking a look, is someone using it as a piece of research uh, across time to like say, okay, um, North Carolina is doing this, University of Florida is doing this, University of Washington is doing this, um, and, and looking at the actual performance data? Do you know of anyone who's doing that right now?
1: No, uh, while that kind of study would be really interesting and worthwhile to know, uh, it would be almost impossible to pull off. The way the closest thing you get to that kind of study is more of a a systematic review, where you would go through the process of defining what each organization is doing, just as a comparative study. After that, it gets really difficult arguably impossible, I would lean towards impossible to link whatever those models are to the performance outcomes, because there's so many different variables that would contribute to improved performance. First and foremost, the single most important variable in success uh, in any type of movement domain is the platform you're working with. So how good are the athletes (laughs) that you have? And if you have bigger, stronger, faster athletes, you're going to win more often than not um and again this is why i think there's not as much investment in the sports psychology world as maybe i would like to see and many others um in in my field that would like to see more and see the value of it is when that is the number one most important thing you're going to see the most investment in recruitment evaluation um investment in those athletes themselves if we're talking about a professional model so how much they get paid because The difference that sports psychology makes is when all else is equal, the team, the organization, the individuals that have optimized their psychological approach, that's who's going to win. But we're not at that point where there's so much talent in the talent pool that there's enough parity for sports psychology to be looked at as, all right, we need the best sports psychology team to be our winning edge. Right now, it's just a luxury um, or a necessity
0: from a mental health perspective. approach that organizations are viewing it because one of the things I just had like a big brainstorm two big brainstorms um and one is if there was some type of database that could be put up where all the different uh organizations could feed their data into and then um we could you're the tech guy uh we could we could just uh kind of sift through with uh with this chat gpt or whatever we'll find something um but we could if we could set up some type of database and ask different organizations would you be willing to submit your data to this and then we would have all these different data points we could actually look at how all these Or get the NCAA on board with something like this so we could have a big, hard look at what is going on. Um, I think that would be an awesome thing. Oh, my gosh, I'm seeing my doctorate. Um, The other thing is uh, you mentioned something, recruiting. um, Is sports psychology used in recruiting? And I'm curious how it would be used. Do are there are there batteries that that recruits um, fill out so we can say, not definitively check this guy off or, oh my gosh, this guy has all the little things we need. Um, I'm thinking of the grit scale uh, that was done by Duckworth, and I'm I'm curious about that. Is there anything? One the database but we'll hold off on that and we'll maybe have a side conversation about that. Um, but the, uh, in recruiting is sports psychology used in recruiting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't imagine
1: that it's not. Yeah. Right. No, you're fine. Like I, I can't imagine that it's not. Um, it, it and by saying that, I mean, I'm, but that sounds like some witch doctor
0: stuff. You know what
1: I mean? Yeah. So that's, there's a, and the reason I say I, I, I can't imagine that it's not is there's a long history of it being used, but being used inappropriately. So okay. um, like any questionnaire style battery that you might have, it should only be used in the way that it was designed for. And most of those instances, a, it was designed for an experimental standpoint or a research-based standpoint okay. um, and not really to evaluate talent. And there's certainly been a history... Uh, of where individuals within the sports psychology field developed uh, assessment tools that were intended for research purposes or intended for uh, intake purposes from a mental health model where coaches have gotten a hold of them and used them to evaluate who they were going to start or who they were going to recruit. Um, And that is a very slippery slope, uh, just in basic terms of ethics, but also efficacy, like Um, you know, you would never use a hammer to try to drill in a screw or you might, but it wouldn't work very well. You might destroy things in the process. And it's kind of the same concept here is if a tool was developed for one purpose and you start using it in a different way, that's, that's pretty dangerous. Um, the, any type of systematically evaluated assessment tool also goes through a long process of testing out the psychometrics to see what the reliability is, um, how well it applies to... Uh, different populations when you start talking about social psychology in particular time matters Mm -mm. so if it was developed in the 1920s versus the 2020s there can be some huge differences in in whether or not that that tool is appropriate anymore um but you do see it um like the combine the nfl combine Mm -hmm. there's tools like i don't know if they're still using the wonder lake but it's kind of a cognitive psychology tool that's been used, and it's been argued that it's been misused and misapplied in that context. Um, you know, I, where I think it, I do think we'll see more of this, and you kind of touched on the AI component to it. Um, AI is going to have a dramatic impact in the sports psychology world it, across all industries, um, but I'll speculate on what I think it might have an impact in sports psychology One is one-on-one interaction with a sports psychology professional can be cost prohibitive for many, many athletes. Um, You know, short of the elite level collegiate uh, professional that can afford it. It's really not all that accessible because the training it takes to get to that level takes a long time. There's not a lot of sports psychology professionals, um, at least not those that have recognized designations. Um, and it can get really expensive. Anybody that's played around with uh these conversation bots like ChatGPT, um Bing AI which is our Bing Chat which is essentially the same technology just mm-hmm. kind of um on top of the Bing platform. You can have real conversations and I, I know there's instances within the sports psychology field where people have requested um different types of psychological skills intervention training plans and it spits things out um Some of them are accurate, some of them are hallucinations that the AI comes up with. But eventually, these AI tools are going to iterate and become more and more clean. I also think there will be instances where you see companies or individuals operating as companies that will actively work to build a platform. If you can imagine an app on your phone or an app in the metaverse, if we go down that path as a society, where you have a personalized uh, sports psychology professional that's really just an AI. Like This is no longer science fiction. This is certainly imaginable and probably um, imminent uh, within the next three to five years that there's going to be an opportunity here um, for that type of thing. From an assessment standpoint, I think when we think about skill acquisition and the way that people learn skills and apply skills, that's definitely a sports psychology application of the subfield of cognitive psychology and, 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 learning, um, um, you know, parts of psychology that talk about learning and, and how the brain develops. So you could very easily develop dynamic sport specific tools to assess and evaluate athletes' abilities to know, understand their trade, make decisions within their specific position, um, the way that virtual reality, augmented reality, renderings going, that's not unimaginable either that you have somebody going through a training session without any competition, not physical competition, but what the athlete is seeing is physical competition. And whoever's running wow. it could manipulate that to see what the athlete knows. So it is probably being used i don't want to say it is being used because i can't point to any specific teams or organizations that are doing it but i would be shocked if they're not using sports psychology to evaluate talent but i do think what is being done now is going to be viewed as not a joke but you know you know 10 15 years back we'd be like whoa that was cute that was really cute we're trying our hearts were in the right place but you know maybe we were a little bit unethical there probably shouldn't have done it that way but man we weren't effective like we are now look at what we can do um so i i just i can't imagine a world in which if we're still competing in any domain that the interface of ai and psychology applied to performance is not going to become a major major aspect of where organizations are trying to get a competitive edge I I lost you again. I couldn't
0: yep, hear Yeah, I got you back. I got you back. I got you back. Um right. so you hit on something really interesting. So there is a misconception um in psychology. There are a lot of people who use sociological um sociological uh things to describes psychological phenomena. So there's there's a confusion between psychology and sociology, where psychology deals with the individual. Um, it's why it becomes difficult to make uh, one size fits all types of uh, types of solutions for psychological issues because it's the individual. So because of that, this is interesting. Um, an AI would need to... So think about the assessment. Think about even on the physiological level. You know, we need to do a a, a physical assessment of, of a person. We need to do a psychological assessment of a person. The AI is going to need to do a learning assessment of the individual that it hopes to help. So you'll have to have, you know about let's say half an hour of conversation with the AI in order for the AI to pattern itself, to understand your personality, your outlook on life, all of these things, not just so with, with a person, we do that immediately. We have that conversation immediately. Um, But if we were giving the AI, the AI doesn't pick up on, you're acting a little deceptive. Is there something deeper we need to talk about? Or, wow you're really gregarious it it won't be able to pick up those nuances so it'll have to go through this assessment type of of uh period but then from there and and that's actually one of the things that they're saying in the bang model is that it needs to you need to ask it a couple of questions for it to actually get to the answer um you want um and why did i bring all that up because now i'm 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 thinking if we can if we can do something like that we can actually reduce our workload so to speak on trying we can use the ai to free up the sports psychology professional in terms of the assessment and then focus more of the sports psychology professional's time into actually generating some type of uh, personalized uh, psychological skills toolbox for each of the individuals. Am I off on that? No, I think that's definitely
1: one potential path where this could go. I mean, when you think about the limiting factor for most organizations, we talked about having a team of specialists mm-hmm. that's really expensive i mean you're talking about having five to ten people to cover all the specific academic domains or expertise disciplines that are out there and even within those you'll see some variations um, and then if you're talking about you know an ncaa organization so a member institution that has you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 teams on it maybe more than that and those teams have athletes How many athletes in a 40-hour week can one individual see? Within that, can they actually build that client-practitioner relationship that's needed? Um, It's been a long time since I took a, a helping behavior counseling skill type of course, but the one thing that stood out to me the most was apparently the number one predicting factor of whether or not A practitioner successful is really how well the practitioner and the client or the patient if it's a mental health model work with one another so there's this dyad component where they have to work well with one another and I don't know about you but I probably have less than 10 really close relationships in my life where I actually know enough about somebody to be able to just pick up a phone and call them and say hey what's going on oh that's interesting you know, how'd you do this? And to ask a practitioner to be really good at that and make the individual that you you have a business transaction going on, but you also need to make them feel like a human being and feel like they're in a safe space. um, That's a limiting factor uh, in that world. And again, one of the reasons why it's so expensive. So I think that could happen. The really cool thing about the AI technology is it allows for these individual instances of the AI. So you know right now we interact with google a lot although that's quickly being replaced like we all use the same google it's kind of you know tweaked and um fine-tuned for us geographically where we are uh what ads in that geographical region are being spent on so that if we're like i'm looking for a restaurant you're like oh look there's three restaurants that pop up immediately well why did those three pop up first because there's some ad generation there going on but it's not telling me stuff that's in new york city or in la It's telling me stuff that's close by where i can actually spend money on right now the ai world is going to allow for the complete upside down version of that to where there is a google garrett and it's my (laughs) personal google and it learns about me and then by nature i'm going to learn about this ai and we're going to start working together as a team and we're going to start functioning as a team and my guess is it's going to go in every single direction that you can imagine—a human dyad, so two individuals working together—and all the things that can go wrong and all the things that can go right. Uh, but over time, it will get more refined. Presumably, there'll be some guardrails added to limit the opportunity for it to completely derail. Um, but these things aren't unimaginable now, and I think that's the really cool thing: is you—you you could like you bring in. Um, I'm just thinking about baseball and how many new draft picks they have every year and how many different minor league teams they have, there's no real way to effectively cover that many athletes and develop personal relationships without sheer brute force and having tons of people on staff. Whereas if you have this customizable, individualized AI, then all of a sudden you've got one-on-one help. And like you said, after those experiences, then maybe somebody needs more personal human-to-human contact, and that's clear with the data that are mm-hmm. present. And then you target somebody that way. So it allows; it, it might allow for um, these types of uh, decision tree um, organizational structures that are in place. Um, it does bring up another interesting aspect, though, that um, you know you pointed out, and that was that human-to-human interaction and, and what happens there. How do we optimize that? Does it matter? I think it does. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about human being problems. It's gonna be hard for an AI to completely replicate that, at least currently, but we'll see. That's one of those fascinating questions that we'll have to, to see how society plays I out.
0: am just trying to keep Skynet from going online. So my my plan is to make friends with the AI and get it so invested in me that it it just, the Terminators never come. So, there you go. We have gone, s- like, around the world around 12 times in this conversation. We've got to wrap it up. Um, is there anything you'd like to finish with? i um, I'm not trying sure. to put you on the spot I'm uh, sorry I just <laughs> is there anything that is important to you we're gonna do this again because you all of our conversations for those of you who don't know Dr Beatty and i he's my advisor he's also my friend, and we spend hours talking to each other when I can get a hold of him but anyways um we're gonna have to do this again um and for free, I don't charge at all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if you'll indulge me, the the one parting shot I'd like to take is um, if anybody, if you want to get good at anything, this is a quote that I tell students all the time, and I'm trying to make it a thing to where I hear it one day just walking down yes. the street from somebody that I've never talked to in my life. Um, and I'll be like, oh, I made an impact in this world. But the things you spend your time doing are the things you're going to become good at doing. That's just the way our brains and our nervous systems work. So if you're trying to get good at something, Do it the way you want to get good at doing it and be okay with the mistakes and the errors. Learn from those. They're just data. Get better. Incrementally get better. Keep doing it the way you want to do it. Um, And you're never going to be perfect, but you're going to get close if you keep practicing it the way that it should be done. If you don't, you're going to be good at doing it the wrong way. Um, So just remember that whatever you spend your time doing, Your brain gets good at doing that. That's
0: awesome. Uh, Dr. Beattie, thank you so much for being here. Stick around for a few minutes. Um, All right, everyone. That is, uh, that's the show. Again, Dr. Beattie, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on. We're going to have you back. Um, We need more farm updates. And our next conversation is going to be, why is it a sports psychology professional? Ah, okay, that's an interesting debate. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, thanks a lot. I will see you guys next time.